we know, as many of us are mature in our faith and believers who have been Christians for a long time, others of us less time than that, we know that in the midst of that, we can still have very real and honest questions and wonders about Christ and about what God is doing in the world as we experience and see it. Now, as we come into our passage today, I'm just going to tell you, it is not a traditional Christmas passage. But as we talked about last week, the Advent story, the coming of Christ, the incarnation is the central moment and core doctrine that all of the Old Testament flows into and all of the New Testament flows out of. As an example, our very salvation and Jesus atoning for our sin and his death, what we celebrate every single week as we gather as believers for worship is a great example of this. Without Christ having come, there would be no salvation for sinful and messed up people like me and like you. So our passage today is Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Again, that's Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Now what we find here is John the Baptist in jail. He's in prison. He's been arrested for his faithfulness to the Lord. And it should not surprise us that what we read about is his question and wondering, how is it that if the Messiah had come, that the Messiah's servant could possibly be sitting in prison? And that's where we pick up our passage. Again, Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, before we get into our passage, a reminder that last week we were in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, and what we saw there is six reasons that Jesus came. That was a passage that was utterly full of hope for a people living in a dark world. That was true then, that is true now for us. Today, what we are going to look at is the good evidence for the work of Jesus in someone's life and community, and in the world. Now, friends, we all have moments where we wonder what God is doing. We all have moments when we wonder, or if I can say it, worry, or have anxiety about whether or not God is working, and whether or not He is here in the world. Like for John the Baptist, there are times when it is easy to ask these questions. Times like we're living in now. And as I look at the world, and I think as we look at the world, we should see that this is one of the fundamental questions that the world is asking right now. The world is asking, it is looking and it is wondering, if God is real and God is good, then why is God not doing anything? 
And that's one of the questions you and I may get from people as we actually endeavor out of our church and out of our homes and into the world and start interacting with lost people. And the question is, is how are we going to answer them? And I would say that we can learn a lot from Jesus' answer in our passage today. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at his answer that we might see and be able to respond much the same way he did to John the Baptist as the world asks very similar questions of us. So what do we see? First, first we see that each of his examples, each of the problems that he speaks of come out of a world full of sin and brokenness. Look at me in verse 4 and then into verse 5. It says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Verse 5, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Church, what we know from the Bible is, is that Things like blindness and deafness, illnesses like leprosy, the fact that anybody ever dies at all, and the fact that we have poor people in comparison to people who aren't poor is a sign that in this world there is a sinfulness and a brokenness. We know that, that it is out of the sinful state of humankind that the world has been broken. And there are times in this world, there are people that you will meet in this world who will say that because of the suffering in the world, it must mean that God isn't real. To look at the brokenness and the sinfulness and believe that because of all of that, God must not be real. But church, how can we call anything broken if there is no perfect? And how can something be wrong if there is not a right? And so what we believe is that the most perfect right one in all of existence entered into our brokenness to save us. Just yesterday I met a young man who could not believe that Jesus was the Son of God because he suffered so much on the cross. If he was really God's Son, then why did he have to suffer? And the answer to that is he had to suffer because he was the Son of God. Because he was the only one who could and still save us. He is the one who took on the sin of the world. He entered into our lives, taking on every part in full. And I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I've suffered, and I know that there are times in all of our lives where we suffer. And, and so for Jesus to enter into this world in that way, he had to do so in what? And suffer. Or he would not have taken on the fullness of what it means to be you and I in our brokenness. His death would only bring full redemption through his taking on the fullness of what it means to be us. And so we are saved because of his suffering. Now, back to our text here, each of the problems that we read about, each one of these things that Jesus addresses flows out of the reality of living in a sinful and broken world. Right? Each one of these things, blindness, deafness, death, right? all these things come out of the reality that we live in. And in that, 
what I think as we read this is that we should not confine Jesus' answer to these six specific things. Jesus, after all, did far more, didn't he? As he confronted the darkness and the brokenness of the world. We've been in the book of Mark. Uh, up until a couple weeks ago, we've been studying very slowly through verse by verse. And what we've seen even there is that he has, in addition to these things, also cast out demons. He has comforted the herded. He has convicted the comfortable. He's led his disciples out of sinful and small lives. And in fact, and, and you know this if you know Christ, he's done a million more other things. It actually tells us in the book of John, chapter 21, verse 25, the final words of the book of John. Because now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And church, we know that is even more true now than it was then. Because he has continued to be at work and continued to, to work in power and might. And he's continued and every one of us who's come to salvation in him is one more chapter of the books that would be written about him. So what this all means is that Jesus' answer to John's question, to his fear, his worry, his anxiety, his pain, his confusion, sitting in that prison cell, is to say, John, look at the evidence. I've already begun to counter the evil and the sin of this world. You've heard about it. You've even seen some of it. And you know what it means. He's reminding John. That he has enough evidence already to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, it is worth John being in prison for the Messiah's sake. So the first thing Jesus answers with is the brokenness of this world. The next thing that Jesus answers with is Scripture. His answer here is entirely scriptural. Now, I will point out at this point that he doesn't quote Scripture here. There is no verse, specific verse you can go back to and say this is the exact wording that, that Jesus uses. Instead, what he does is he takes a major theme throughout much of Scripture and a, a major, major theme in the book of Isaiah and carries it forward. Jesus answers with Scripture. If you go to Isaiah chapter 35, and I would invite you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 35, starting in verse 5. Now, one of the things that we know about the proper way to read Scripture is to read things in context. Jesus knew that too. Apostle Paul knew that as he quotes the Old Testament in numerous places in his letters. As Jesus and other New Testament writers would quote the Old Testament, what we need to know is that when they reference one verse, they're usually referencing more than that because they would be reading those same verses in context, which we're going to take a little exercise in that here. First thing we're going to notice as we start into verse 5 is the same formula that Jesus uses as he speaks to John, or through his disciples to John. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. 
The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water on the hunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Church, how many of you are encouraged by that line right there? Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. When I read that and I was like, praise God. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, and the redeemed shall walk there. Verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Church, Jesus goes to Scripture to address John, and the passages that he's go to are so full. They say far more than even Jesus says. Looking at verse, right, these first verses, we see that theme: the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute, they are made well. At the end, into six, verse seven, it says, For the waters break forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. Church, how many of us have been thirsty ground, thirsting for a spring of water to boil up and to, to come up and to quench the thirst? We live in a dry land. We all know what it's like and, and what it's like when, when suddenly the rains come out of the heavens, when the, when the snows come and they give enough water to saturate the ground. You can smell it as the plants just grow and take life. And Jesus is speaking this yes about the earth. Because it's not just us that are waiting for the Messiah and for salvation, but we're actually told in the Bible that, that all of creation is groaning and waiting. But yes, our hearts too, church. We who have dry, dry parched lips and dry parched souls, there is a promise here. You can picture John sitting in his prison cell, famished, dry, right? Just thirsting for hope. We move on to verse 10, and I'll just say I'm moving on to verse 10, not because the others aren't important, but because there's eight sermons right here. But verse 10, hear this, the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Church, hear the promise here. Hear the promise. And Jesus is speaking all this in these sorts of contexts. He's aware that as he speaks this, John is aware of these sorts of verses. Church, the call to joy. Some of you are already annoyed me. I've been here six months, and you're like, Pastor Matt, you could stop talking about joy every week. I tell you, I won't stop talking about joy every week. Because if I stop talking about joy every week, you're not going to be ready for heaven. You won't. Because we are called to joy. Joy in all things, joy in Christ, joy. You see it all over the place. Go to Isaiah chapter 29. Again, this isn't just one part of the book of Isaiah. This is another part as well. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 18. Here's what it says. 
In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. You see that same theme flowing through, yet again the deaf will hear, the blind will see. The meek shall obtain what joy? And those who take advantage of others, church, what we see in verse 20 and 21 here, for the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. How comforting is it to John the Baptist, in jail for doing the right thing, to be reminded by Jesus, through the context of Scripture, that not only is joy coming, and not only are deaf going to be made to hear and the blind to see, but those who are ruthless against those who are righteous will meet their just end. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 19, when Jesus is first sort of introducing himself to the very church, or the very synagogue, sorry, that he grew up in, He's handed the book of Isaiah, and, and I love the picture of this because when we're thinking about handing a book or something, we, we're shuffling through the pages, right, one after the other. He, he's handed a scroll, and he shuffles through the entire thing. Now, that means you, you unroll the bottom, and you roll up the top as you go, and you keep the whole thing saved. This is a big deal. And as he goes through the entire book of Isaiah, this is the passage he lands on out of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 2. Jesus reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to, pre to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. What comfort it is to John in prison that Jesus has come to bring liberty to those who are oppressed and liberty to the captives. In verse 21 of Luke chapter 4, Jesus adds this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Church, I fear that we as modern believers forget that scripture is not just words on a page. I fear that that there are times, and I know this even in my own life, which is why I can say it, that there are times when the words of Scripture are just words, but, but we know in Scripture they are not just words. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 through 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Church, did you know that every good thing you've been called to, every good thing, and hear this, to know the will of God has already been given to us in the words. Jesus answers John with scripture. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit points and a marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Christian, when we read the word of God, it lays us bare and naked 
And some of us know what that's like. We know as we read, and it reveals our hearts, and it reveals our sin, and it reveals our pain, and it reveals our problems. But know what it does from there? It covers up our shame. Maybe you're here and you're not even a Christian today. You may know what this is like too. Because you've been in the Word and you've read the Word and and it's spoken to your heart in some way. You've never given your life to Jesus. But you know that this book, is there's something about it. You know that these words speak to you in a way that you don't quite understand. And so you keep returning to it. That's because it's living and active. For a book to be living and active, for words to be living and active, what that means is it's in relationship with us. And there's a give and take. We approach it and it speaks to us. And then we respond to it and and it speaks back to us. I gotta tell you, if you're a believer, I hope you know what I'm talking about here. If you're not a believer, then today's the day to figure it out. It is living and active. Jesus answers John with Scripture. We need to do the same, church. We need to do the same. The Word of God penetrates people's hearts in a way that that anybody else's words don't. The words of Scripture. Let me ask you this. Do you know Scripture well enough to answer with it? Do you have a conversation with a loved one, with a family, a friend, a coworker, a stranger on the street, a Jehovah's Witness who shows up at your door? Do you know Scripture well enough to answer the questions with Scripture and not just with thoughts, ideas, and philosophy? we got to be in the Word. All right, the third thing Jesus answers with, right? He answered with the, the brokenness that we all experience. He also answers with the word. The third thing he answers with is miracle and power. Miracle and power. Now, there's a lot of different definitions of miracle you can work with. The one that I've been working with the most lately is that a miracle is something that could not have happened in any other way in the way that it did. Miracle is something that could, that happened in a way that could not have happened otherwise in the way that it did. Someone I care for deeply recently told me that they had a cancer scare. Their doctor had identified a possible problem, and over the course of the next six weeks, he had to get a biopsy and things checked out. I only found out about all of this afterwards, and when I asked why he didn't tell me, after all, I am a praying person. I love to pray. I love to pray for people. And these sorts of things tend to not throw me very, very far. I tend to have a very high view in the sovereignty of God and his comfort over his people. And so why didn't you tell me this earlier? Well, the response that I got, he said this, I didn't tell you because I knew if it turned out to be nothing, you would think your prayers were answered. Yes. Now, I don't, wouldn't necessarily call that a miracle, though. I'm going to be real careful labeling the miracle on that because it might have happened in another way. It might have just not been anything. Right There are times we pray for God's will. Did you know praying for God's will is the most basic, easy prayer to pray? Do you know why? His will always happens. Right? We pray for God's will, and it's already happening. 
Right? We pray for cancer screening to come back negative, but it might have come back anyway. We pray for baptisms, and we get a baptism. Praise the Lord. Some of those things might have happened anyway. A couple years ago, I began praying in January for five baptisms that year. Now, by March, I forgot to keep praying for five baptisms that year. In December, we baptized our fifth person that year. And the Lord reminded me of the prayer that I had begun to pray and then forget about. Because he's good like that. He got all the more glory because the prayer was specific and it filled the exact time frame and the exact number. Too bad we didn't pray for six or eight or 12 or 100. Church, what we see in our passage here is that everything points to the miraculous power of God. A blind person cannot be made to see apart from the mighty work and the mighty power. Someone who's deaf cannot be made to hear without a mighty work of power. Yes, we live in a modern technology world with medicine that's doing amazing things. Still not a miracle. Still not a miracle. People are helped but not healed. You'll get Jesus and and throughout his whole story, Throughout all the Gospels, there's one miraculous incident after another. Here's one of the most amazing ones in my mind. Mark chapter 4, verse 39. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. A big storm comes up, and he's asleep. And they're terrified. And they wake him up, and they say, Jesus, don't you even care that we're about to die? For any of you who are really melodramatic, like me, this is also a comfort. It says this, Mark 4.39, He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, it would be entirely possible for Jesus to rebuke the wind and coincidentally have the storm stop at that moment. It is utterly impossible for anything but the power of God, a miracle working, for the sea to be instantly calmed at the same exact second. I mean, you throw a rock into a pool and it's going to have waves for like 10 minutes. You've got a giant storm large enough that the, the experienced fishermen are terrified for their life. These waves, these waters are not coming down like that. But that's what the text tells us. That when Jesus rebuked the storm and told the waves to be still, they were. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Just like the curing of blindness, deafness, death to life. Right? Jesus answers John with a miracle. Church, you know the most amazing miracle that still happens every single day? Every one of you who's a Christian is a testament to it. That he can raise dead people like you and me to life. Church, hear this. Some of us need a reminder. If he can raise you from the dead and save you, he can save your family, he can save your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and everybody in this valley. We need to remember that because Jesus answers John how? With power. All right, the next thing Jesus answers with is the personal work that he's done. I love Jesus' answer here. 
I love Jesus' answer here, right? He says, John, you've seen it. You know it, the, the blind, right? The deaf, the dead are raised, the lepers are cured. These are all the very things that Jesus has spent his last year doing. <laughs> Saying, John, John, look at me. I've done all these things. Jesus answers with himself. We actually see this really play out into verse 6. And I just want to tell you, before I read this verse, this verse was always one of those verses I didn't quite know what to do with, and I really wondered about it, because it kind of seems like Jesus is being a jerk. And I say that carefully, and letting you know that I was wrong in thinking that, okay? I mean, John is in prison. He's having a rough day. And Jesus says to him, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What does Jesus mean here? What Jesus means is he says, John, look at all these things I've done. And that's the point. I've done them. I've done everything that needs to be done. And I'm going to do everything that needs to be done to save your souls. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The one who's offended by Jesus, I meet this person all the time in our world today. They're the people who want to do it themselves. They want to do it themselves. When Jesus is saying, I've already done it. I've already done it. Church, nobody wants to rely on somebody else even for things they can't do themselves. Nobody wants to trust somebody else to do the work that they think they have to do. This is the young man I met yesterday. He will not go to any path that says somebody else has to do what he wants to do. The one who's not offended by Jesus, church, is the one who receives his work, his miracle, his salvation, his power, because they know they cannot do it themselves. And they know they don't have to. Here's the freedom in Christ. Here's the freedom of Christ. Not only do we not have to, but we know we don't have to try. And that he's the one who's done the work. He's the one who's done it all. Some of us know this all too well. We're free in Christ. And some of us are still trying. We're trying to pay back Jesus for what he's done for us. Stop now. It's exhausting. He died for us. You're not paying that back. Okay? He's already done everything that you need. Some of us need to hear this right now. You need to turn. You need to repent of your old life. And you need to find a new one in Christ. Because he's already done the work. He's already done the work. All right. The fifth thing that we see in our passage, the fifth answer, is that Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks what? He's done. Now, this is really similar to the one we just did, right? He answered with himself and, and his completed work. But hear this. The fifth thing we see in this is that he answers with what he's done. And the reason this is different is because this is also for us. This is also for us. See, Jesus' answer to John is really easy here. And I love this. He says, John, well, 
I'm not going to speak a bunch of theological truths to you. I'm going to tell you what I did. How many of us have we've sought to love people and introduce them to Jesus? We've talked about that, about what God has done and, and whatnot. How much easier is it when we are in a place of faithfulness and obedience than when we're not? Hear this, Isaiah 42. We're going to another passage in Isaiah. You see the theme here? Isaiah chapter 40 through 42. I'm going to struggle to get there, of course. Isaiah 42, verse 6 through 7. I want you to notice a difference in our passage here today. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord, and I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Pause there. Christian, Jesus will take you and give you as a gift, to, as a light for the nations. Verse 7, hear this. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I love this because Jesus says to John, hey, I've done all these things for you. This is my answer. And what does he say to us? He says, hey, you get to be a part of this. You get to be a part of this. Moving on, look at verse 8. He says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Church, we get the joy of going out and doing what Christ came here to do. And you know who gets the glory for it? Not you. And not me. He gets the glory for it. Because he's not going to share that with anyone. Matthew 25. Starting in verse 36, Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. He's talking about separating those out. And here's what he says, Matthew 25, verse 36 through 40. Many of you will be familiar with this passage. Again, starting in verse 36, he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these bro my brothers, you did it for me. Church, like Jesus... Involved in the answer by everything he does, we too as a church are meant to be involved in the answer we give to the world. We too are meant like Christ to open the eyes of the blind, to open the ears of the deaf, to take those who are lame and help them to walk, to take those who are in the prison of sin and darkness and death and raise them to life. We get to be a part of that. He gets the glory. The world says, I don't see God working. Church, we've got a job. Because if the world doesn't see God working, it's because we're not. 
What are we doing to address the brokenness of this world? What are you as an individual? What is your family doing? What is our church doing to address the brokenness of the world? What are we doing to show the world how important the Word of God is, Scripture is? What are we doing to show the world how powerful He still is? What are we doing to show people that God, that Christ still cares and comes to them personally? There's an old saying. Some of you have probably heard it before. It says, don't be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. Do you know that's an impossibility? It is an impossibility to be so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. Because what this earth needs is heavenly minded Christians. What this world needs is, is Christians who, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're so heavenly minded that we want heaven to be here now. And we're willing to do anything to make that happen. Not only that, but we want to be so heavenly minded that we want to take everybody we meet with us. That we never walk away from an opportunity. In church, I walk away from opportunities a stupid amount of time to share the gospel. That we never walk away from an opportunity to bring somebody to heaven with us. The world is looking for answers to these questions. The world is looking and wondering, did Christ really come? And the answer, we know it is yes. But we don't always get to see it. You can know a car accident happened as you drive down the highway because you see skid marks, broken glass, and a puddle of weird fluid. You can right, walk through a, an area of forest fire that, that's been burned and all you have is trees and six-inch shrubs and know that there was a forest fire that happened. You can know that God loves the world because you see the evidence Because you see the work of Christ through and in his people, through and in his church. We who are in Christ know this, and the world needs to know it too. Amen?